Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. The first sustained gay rights group in the U.S., the Mattachine Society, sprang directly from the mind of Harry Hay in 1950. Harry was the gay rights pioneer who paved the way for everything that came after. So if this fourth season of Making Gay History is an exploration of beginnings, Harry Hay was there at the inception of the movement in the U.S. But if you skim the pages of the Making Gay History book from which this podcast is drawn, you won't find Harry's interview. And that's not because when I tried to shake his hand goodbye, he grabbed my face and planted a wet kiss on my lips, although that definitely pissed me off. Nor is it because of his tut-tutting, which drove me nuts. And it's also not because he lectured me, almost as if I weren't there, resisting my questions, and paused only to call me sweetie or dear. It's because I needed Harry to fill in some key building blocks on how the gay rights movement in the U.S. was born. But there was no corralling him, And after a very frustrating 90 minutes, he had to leave for a doctor's appointment, and I was heading back to San Francisco. We were out of time. And I can see now, from reading my post-interview notes, I was also out of patience. Harry was a theorist, an activist philosopher. He was more interested in expounding on the arc of homosexual history, starting with the ancient Greeks, than telling me the story of how he founded Mattachine, which is why I wanted to interview him in the first place. But... 30 years later, listening to Harry's tape was a revelation. Now I could hear Harry's story loud and clear. And it's about carving out an identity in a society that says, you don't exist. One more thing you should know about Harry Hay is that he was something of a time traveler. He was born at the end of the Edwardian era in England in 1912, but raised in California, where his mother dressed him as Little Lord Fauntleroy. That's a fictional character straight out of a 19th century children's novel. Think black velvet jacket and matching knee pants worn with a fancy blouse with a large ruffled collar and a floppy bow. But in 1989, Harry greets me at the door of his broken-down Hollywood, California bungalow, dressed like an aging hippie. Beaded necklace, ample sideburns, long gray hair, a single dangling earring. He looks every inch the radical fairy. He was a co-founder of that movement, too. 
We step into Harry's cool, book-lined living room and take our seats. I clip the microphone to his shirt and press record. Interview with Henry Hay, Friday, August 24th, 1989. Location is Los Angeles, California. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one, side one. Every class has to, good, has to have a good available sissy. One sissy, anyway, is a scapegoat. And so all of a sudden, I quickly became chief sissy, you see. What, what kinds of things do they say besides? Well, because after all, honey, I, was a, I really was a sissy. They kid yourself. I mean, you know, I threw a ball like a girl. Like, I walked differently than the boys did. And I knew that I felt differently than the boys mm-hmm. did. I knew I saw differently than the boys did. And um, I had a tendency to cry. And I liked poetry. And all those things that boys are not supposed to like, you know. And they would call me a fairy, and I knew the fairy was a terrible word, but I kind of liked it. Secretly, I liked it. Uh, When I was 11, uh, this is 1923, I managed to get a book out of the locked glass case behind the librarian's desk. This is a book by Edward Carpenter. I've got lots of Edward Carpenter up there now. from the look on your face, you don't seem to know him, do you? Hmm. Well, a lot of things I don't know. Well, I mean, Edward Carpenter is one of the great, one of our great forebears in this regard. What we do know about the personal life of Walt Whitman, we know from Edward Carpenter, who came here and, and stayed with him twice. So, um, as I said, I'm reading this this book, and um, he was. The book itself is published in 1921, and, uh, and he's talking all about in the Greek tradition and uh, how they were, each one was everything to the other person completely, that there were a totality between the two of them, and uh, uh, lifelong lovers. And he talks about the Romans and doing the same thing, then he goes down to, uh, you know, Michelangelo and Shakespeare and, and so on. And he uses the word homosexual. And I've never heard of that. I don't know what it is. And I go look it in the dictionary, and of course it isn't there. Um, it won't be in any American dictionary until 1937. Until 37? Right. So, you, um, so even if you knew the word homosexual, you couldn't go to the dictionary and look well, it up. Well, as I said, if I'd had the sense I was born with there and gone downtown to look in the penal code, I would have found it. Uh-huh. It's in the penal code and in the medical code, but it wasn't in any of the libraries. So anyway, I can't find out what I mean, but I know. I just know it's me, and it's wonderful, because up until this point I have thought I'm the only one of my kind in the world, I have absolutely no one I can ever talk to, I'm something peculiar and strange and different, and it's beautiful, but nevertheless, there's no one to talk to. Harry spends the next decade looking for someone to talk to, and ironically, it was his self-made autocratic father who helped Harry find his way to other gay men. He sent Harry out into the world at 13 to work on his uncle's farm doing heavy manual labor. Harry hits the road as a seasonal farm worker, then heads for San Francisco. He pays his way down the California coast by working on merchant ships. That's where, at age 14, he meets his first lover. Eventually, and a few lovers later, he finds his way to a new life in Los Angeles. By 1930, of course, I am out, shall we say, because in February of 1930, I made contact with the man who uh, introduces me, more or less, to uh, gay life here in, in Los Angeles. And um, it turned out that he had been the um, protege of a doctor in Kansas City, where he had recently come from, 
who had been interned at one time in St. Louis and before that in Chicago. As in Chicago, he in turn had been the friend, had been the young friend of an older man who at one time had started a, a group of homosexuals in Chicago in 1924. Did you get that? This is the thing. Maybe not, because the thread of history is rarely straight. So let me untangle this for you. The thread begins with Magnus Hirschfeld, who founded the first gay rights organization in 1897 in Berlin, and in 1919 he founded a sexuality institute. Inspired by Hirschfeld's institute, German immigrant Henry Gerber founded a short-lived gay group in Chicago in 1924. That's the organization Harry just mentioned. So how do we get from Henry Gerber to Harry Hay? It's almost like a game of telephone where a single message is passed from person to person. In this case, the message was to bring people together to fight for our rights. And through a series of filament-thin connections across time and between friends and lovers, that message was whispered in young Harry's ear. And this doctor in turn had another protege who was the guy who picked me up. And he told me how dangerous it was and how I must never have anything to do with anything like that at all because it was so dangerous. And that was the other message that was coming through to young Harry Hay. But this message was far louder and more clear. Just simply stay away from it. In every state of the Union, that it would ruin you for life. So I was warned. It was a terrible idea to even try to build an organization for homosexuals. We ourselves have always been, up until the 20th century, we have been seen as outlaws. We are beyond, out, the, the law doesn't cover us. In the church, we oftentimes talk about the peccato nefando, and they always speak of our sin as the nefarious sin. Well, that's a nice word until you look at the word, because what it really means, the sin for which there is no forgiveness. Mm. Every other sin, you can go through 40 that's years right. of penance, but it can that's eventually right. be forgiven, but that one is not forgivable. Now, why? Very interesting, why? The Emperor Domitian, who had you burnt at the stake for it. Others had you uh, obliterated by stones. But the point was that you were wiped out. So that there's nothing left for the, the, when the, when the body is called for to go into resurrection on the last day, there will be nothing left of you. That's mm -hmm. what obliteration means. So therefore there's nothing left. There's no place for the soul. All right. The reason why is because you have taken the law in your own hands. Mm. And the point is, if you will take this law, and even though we burn you, and even though we stone you, and even though we do all these things, you take the law anyway, mm -hmm. what other law would you take into your own hands? You are a danger to the state, because you deliberately take a law and break it. We can't afford to have you exist. And that's why we have always been an outlaw, and why we continue to be that outlaw. One of the things that I have been saying all along is that, and this is something that has to be said in the histories, I believe, is that the middle class never, never established anything brand new. This is something they don't do. They don't do this well at all. The drive to do something revolutionary and different is going to come from people who have already been working as outlaws mm -hmm. and know how to do this. How then in, in 19, this is late 40s, early 50s, did you come to have conversations with people about doing something that was... Because in 1930, dear, I was, I was as a communist and a, a trade union member fighting for the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I saw my, our own people as oppressed as these people were. So that I had been practicing taking the law in my own hands for a long time. And so in 1930 when I was uh, 
working in the, in the theater, I um, fell madly in love with the leading man, whose name was Will Gear. Uh, he was a man who eventually showed up in the Waltons and the various things you may know him by that thing. I but know anyway. exactly who he is. But anyway, so this was in '34. You this is 34. Fell in, and he fell in love with you. We became lovers. And in the course of that, he was a member of the Communist Party, and he, he uh, recruited me. Um, in that period, we, we would never have kept a, 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 an address book. We would have never kept records, we would have never kept a telephone book in our houses, because people could be, uh, could be identified through us. Well, any of us left of center had gone through that training. So that in 1950, when we were starting the Mattachine, we are, we are going to be guaranteeing anybody who comes anywhere near our groups that any of us who have the names and addresses of people will take the Fifth Amendment before we'll ever, before we'll ever give away anything. Now, and that integrity, and as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, was tremendously important because this had not happened to gay people up until that time. They had been usually betrayed by somebody somewhere along the line, or they would find somebody's telephone book or somebody's address book and all kinds of people would be exposed. We didn't have any lists. We didn't allow ourselves to have pictures taken in a group. So that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why there are no pictures out of that period. The only picture from that period is... The, the picture of that John Wilbur took. At Christmas time. Christmas, Christmas 1951. Which getting me a copy Chuck of. house. Right. There were uh, no pictures. No pictures. We knew at this time that we had to set up a facade. We had to have a respectable, socially acceptable, legal facade behind which we could operate as we needed to operate. And what we had thought to do was to set up a foundation which would sponsor semi-public discussion groups based on the Kinsey Report, which you see is out at this point now. We're using that and using the chapters and the various points that are in that to have people to openly discuss this. And the public discussion groups were set up in such a way that and everybody who came did exactly the same thing. I have a friend who, or my father, my, my uncle who lives in Alaska, or I had a, a cousin who killed himself last year, but he lived in Montreal, you know, and then on and on and on. And they, so all the autobiographies come out in the form of, I have a friend who, or I've got an uncle his, you know, uh, which is okay. That's great. Because all, we get the point, points out, we discuss all the things we need to discuss, and people occasionally forget and say, I ah, instead of him. But, you know, outside of that, you can forgive those little, little slips. So they created their own facade. And uh, the, so that with, within the discussion group, there are members of the society, which is a separate group and is, a, under, is, is behind this, and is a closed group, who are conducting this discussion and who are watching to see whose eyes get inordinately bright and have a gleam going, which is more than ordinarily interested. In other words, the veil has raised and you're looking at the person. And you take that person aside and invite him to have supper with you. And if he seems to be sufficiently interested in what we're all interested in, you show him the call to the, to the society. What is, what is that? Uh, it, we had a, had a, had a call to, uh, to come together to begin to develop a gay organization. When you say show him the call, was it printed? Oh, sure. What, it was what? a five-page thing, as a matter of fact, the original call. And um, then if he was interested in that, then you invited him to a, a guild meeting. The society was set up in guilds, and you invited him to a, a guild meeting. And um, then, but his acceptance into the group would have to be unanimous. All the things that we did in the society and the foundation were unanimous. 
we did not vote. It's not an easy thing to achieve. No, it wasn't. But the point was that, and this was my thinking too, that we, as far as we knew, we were the first kind, this kind of an organization in the United States, in the history of the United States. We didn't know of anything else. And this is the height of the McCarthy period. And all, all of us who were organizers were all way left of center. As a matter of fact, we were Reds. And so consequently, we felt that, that we mustn't make a mistake, or if we did make a mistake, that we would set back the whole idea of a gay organization for years to come, that we'd just terrify everybody. And uh, uh, it happens that the, the Mattatine Foundation was made up of um, my mother as president, um, Conrad Stevens's mother as secretary, and his sister, I think, as treasurer. Um, so you asked your mother to become involved because you needed a presentable front. We we need we we knew we needed heteros to uh, to to found the foundation. The foundation would have to be that. You needed what? I'm sorry. We needed heteros for the foundation. We recognized that, and we recognized the fact that we would have to have hetero people who would who with whom we could work and who could hear us. And so, I, asking my mother, um, I knew that she was let's say the most respectable person that I could possibly think of, who had a certain, she had a certain standing here in the community. And this was what she was doing in did 1952. She, did she have any idea what she was president to of? To a large, to some extent she did. And consequently, all the other young men who were part of the board of directors of Mattachine Foundation, she loved. She thought they were wonderful people and she felt we were doing a very interesting job and she did agree, agree in, that this was an idea whose time has come. And the idea, the idea that uh, that, that gay people should be finding their own place and that the laws should be being changed to recognize who they are. Because by this time, you see, the Kinsey Report has come out and I've given her the Kinsey Report to read. But these, these are the people who are, who are acting, going to be there for uh, the foundation, who will be there for present, presenting us to the society at large. This is what it really amounts to. Yeah, why couldn't you do it yourselves? Well, in the first place, we're totally illegal. Why were you totally illegal? We were totally illegal because um, perverted acts are, uh, homosexuality in itself is totally illegal. And uh, uh, to be a homosexual meant, among other things, that you were, as I said, a degenerate forming de de degenerate acts. And so consequently, uh, you would be fired from your job. You would lose your insurance. You would be thrown out of your apartment. Um, if at any moment, the, the great threat which the Red the Vice Squad held over everybody's head was that if you were ever caught in any, uh, in any situation where you were in violation of 647. Which, which was? Which is the Lewd and Lysimics Act in the State Penal Code. Um, there's 647 AD, A through F, I think. There's all these various truths. But if you make the mistake of raising one eyebrow rather than both, you're, yes, like that. Uh, you would be in trouble as far as the cops are concerned. They would immediately assume that you are making an assignation. And this would therefore leads to licentious conduct. And that is illegal. This had been the law for as far as we knew all the way back. This right. is what we were told. Right. And so consequently, the idea of, of, of being able to fight that law was something that hadn't occurred to anybody. Uh, 
what we were doing, we were finding ways and means to accommodate to the law. And this is what the society was doing. It was attempting to accommodate that law. One of the important things that the Maritime does, which has never been given credit for, and I think it should be, one of the first series of discussion groups we had was that we were very dissatisfied with the name homosexual because it didn't describe how we felt and what we were doing. What it really, all it kept, it, we ourselves knew that moments you mentioned homosexual, the, the law, the judge, the lawyers, everybody says, well, we know what a homosexual is, and they read up what the homosexual is out of the penal code. Which mean, which is? Which is uh, that you are a hetero performing nasty acts, that you are a hetero, and you're a deviant, perverted hetero, but hetero you are. And this we wanted to change, because this didn't bespeak us at all. So consequently, we worked for about six months trying to find a, an acceptable word. I can remember we'd have meetings every couple of weeks on just this thing alone, and I would come in with a whole list of, of prefixes and a whole list of suffixes, and we'd try putting the two together and see how it sounded, how it felt. Do you remember some of, the, some of the alternatives? I've forgotten now what they all were, but eventually we ended up, decided that we liked homophile. That was the one we liked. Now, everybody said, well, they were using it in Holland. How come you didn't copy it from them? Well, fine, except we didn't know that. Because literature like that was not permitted through the males. And the only way that you could have known that is if we had people of the upper middle class who were traveling in 1948 and 49, and we didn't know too many people who did, uh, who would have gone to Europe and found this out and come back and told you. Because that was the only transmission for information of that sort. We would get, uh, after, after we got our discussion group started, and there were people who came to them, and then who, or who, were, who were Europeans who were here, and would write back to us. We would get little billy doos from the post office saying, we just received this package in your name, you want to know that you've destroyed it. And that would happen over and over and over again. People would try to send us books or pamphlets, and they would be stopped. And what kind of note would you from get? From the post office. What did it say? Uh, uh, telling us that a package had come from England, from so-and-so, in our name, and it was illegal and unlawful material, and it had been destroyed. So the fact was you couldn't receive things through the mail that had any homosexual orientation? No, not at all. We could uh, any, any homosexual orientation at all, no pictures, no nothing. Uh, books couldn't come, pamphlets couldn't come, and if letters came, sometimes the, even the letters were intercepted. The letter would have been opened and closed up again. And that wasn't illegal? As far as the post office is concerned, silly. The post office is the law. Well, at least as far as as far as the little queer in, in L.A. is concerned, it's the law, because nobody's going to fight your case for you. That's right. That's right. There's nobody to fight the case. That's right. You, you, these are the things you must understand. This is why I say there was no identity. It does. And it doesn't exist. You are a hetero performing nasty acts. So yeah. therefore, therefore, you're a criminal. You were a deviant. And, but you're, if you were, a, you're a criminal. Right. I mean, deviant is what sounds pleasant, but you're a criminal. No, but you can't, to be a deviant, it means you must. You, if you're a normal homosexual, you're not a deviant. But since what? what? If they considered homosexuality to be a real thing, then you wouldn't be a deviant because I, you were normal. That's but right. You're a deviant heterosexual. Is right. what you're saying. I'd never thought of that, and that's exactly what it is. You were a deviant heterosexual, and in that respect, this is unlawful. Right. So it, homosexuals weren't even recognized as a thing. It's an adjective. It isn't a person. We make a person out of it. You might just have heard something click for me. Thirty years ago, sitting with Harry Hay, 
I started to understand what he was up against, what we were up against in forming an identity and a movement in the mid-20th century. How do you fight for your rights if you don't exist, if what you are is just a criminal act? Harry not only co-founded an organization to fight for our rights, he also helped shape who we are as a people. So if an image of Harry Hay's mother sipping tea while listening to a group of gay people discuss the Kinsey Report sounds meek, it wasn't. It was subversive. It was radical and risky in a way that many of us living our lives out and proud find hard to imagine. Harry Hay was one tough sissy. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Birmingham and the rest of the Making Gay History crew. Producer Josh Gwynn, production coordinator Inga Detaya, social media producer Daniel Lorenko, photo editor Michael Green, and our guardian angel Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season four of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, and our listeners, including a generous gift from Andra and Irwin Press. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends or give us a shout out on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. And to find out what we're cooking up next, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link for that and all our previous episodes, as well as archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people we feature at makinggayhistory.com. Just one more thing. Going forward, we'll be sharing a new episode with you every other week. So we'll be back in two weeks. So long, until next time.